Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 207th episode of the Nauticast, titled Unlucky Sevens, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 8, in which Joffrey and Marjorie finally get hitched. Oh, good luck to those crazy kids. Another Westerosi wedding, where nothing could possibly go wrong. It's the first thing that's ever gone wrong. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Ike novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from one of our patrons, James, who asks, I was listening to episode 77 recently, where it was said that the reason Tyrion was sent to serve as Hand was in part due to Cersei dismissing Lord Commander Barristan and the bad optics that could amount from that decision. My question is, would Barristan have served Joffrey even with his treatment of Sansa and the small folk in the following months? I know he is known for standing by his heir as committed his various crimes slash abuses, but would Barristan stand by after Robert's rebellion and simply serve another gag unworthy of the crown? Would any specific action Joff or his coalition committed cause Barristan to turn cloak? Thanks for all that you do. And what do you think? If Barristan had been allowed to stick around, he says to Danny that I might still be serving Joffrey if he hadn't fired me, but if Barristan saw how bad Joffrey got in A Clash of Kings, do you think he'd reach a breaking point? I don't mean to give Barristan no credit, but no, I really don't think he would. Um, okay. I really think stripping him of the white cloak was like a paradigm shift for him. That's like kind of like those hinges of a character arc that you can't come back from because I think something was taken away from him that he thought couldn't be taken away. Um, I think he, he might have hemmed or hawed or maybe he like, you know, sat beside Tyrion, kind of like how he sat beside Ned Stark and kind of grumbled about how things are these days. But I just don't see him like out and out, like openly rebelling. I think Joffrey gave him the impetus and, you know, I guess good on Barrison for actually seizing that and taking that moment to like grow as a person, I guess. But I really <laughs> think he kind of needed that push. And I kind of, at this point, he's so old and I can't imagine he's going to see anything that really tops what he saw with Eris, Um, because, you know, Eris kind of went even further than Joffrey. Um, no one was really checking Eris in the way that Joffrey was somewhat checked by Cersei or Tyrion in his hand and especially kind of by Tywin. Um, so I just kind of don't see it happening in the same way. I agree. I think especially after Tywin came back to town, because then mm -hmm. Barristan can easily tell himself, ah, the adults are back in charge. There's a reasonable man in the room. No more need to think. I think it, I, I could imagine an escalating situation where like Joffrey orders Barristan to hit Sansa, although I doubt even Joffrey would really be that stupid. But like, or you know, if Barristan comes into conflict with another one of the Kingsguards, like he tries to stop Meryn Trant by force, I could see that escalating. But even then, I feel like it's more likely to end up with Barristan dead or you know mm -hmm. people shooting enough arrows into him where even he goes down uh more likely than it is him actually leaving because yeah he is he has seen so much so many terrible things under eris he would be able to you know tell himself any number of of uh, convenient lies about it and i think he is yeah he is just such a institutionalist like i love the detail that jamie also loves that after Barristan got fired, while well, you know the gold cloaks were chasing him down, he took the time to write in the white book about how he got fired. <laughs> like that's just like like you know I gotta keep the records, otherwise people will think ill of me. Like that's Barristan to the core, and even Joffrey I think would not would not be enough to break it, especially while he's still underage. I think Barristan would be able to tell himself a lot of different things. Yeah, I mean, like I said, he himself kind of admits I'd probably still be there <laughs> if Joffrey hadn't fired me. So good on him for the for the honesty, I guess. 
so thank you to James for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-I-F, where our patrons get benefits, including exclusive episodes every month, early access to our regular episodes, and more. But to jump back to today's chapter, let's get into the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 8. The new crown that his father had given the faith stood twice as tall as the one the mob had smashed, a glory of crystal and spun gold. Rainbow light flashed and shimmered every time the High Septon moved his head, but Tyrion had to wonder how the man could bear the weight. And even he had to concede that Joffrey and Marjorie made a regal couple, as they stood side by side between the towering gilded statues of the father and the mother. The bride was lovely in ivory silk and mirish lace, her skirts decorated with floral patterns picked out in seed pearls. As Renly's widow, she might have worn the Baratheon colors, gold and black, yet she came to them at Tyrell, in a maiden's cloak made of a hundred cloth of gold roses sewn to green velvet. He wondered if she really was a maiden. Not that Joffrey's like to know the difference. And Tyrion's right, because Joffrey will be dead before he ever gets a chance to pollinate that rose. Although even if he had, Tyrion would still be right, Joffrey wouldn't know the difference. Unlike the show, Joffrey has yet to get his casterly rocks off at this point, as far as we know. Joffrey also looks the part of a perfect king with his crimson cloak, golden hair, and the crown Tyrion fought a battle to keep on that evil little head. Tyrion's got an evil little head of his own giving him trouble. He desperately needs to piss after the literal ocean of wine he has drunk so far today. He's also just exhausted after partying all night with Shay, but mostly he's angry at Joffrey, even more so than usual. I am no stranger to Valyrian steel, the boy had boasted. The Septons were always going on about how the father above judges us all. If the father would be so good as to topple over and crush Joff like a dung beetle, I might even believe it. Oof, so close Tyrion, but it's the crone who will be stepping on Joffrey today. Tyrion blames himself for not realizing sooner that it was Joffrey who tried to have Bran killed in his bed. After all, Jaime would have done it himself, and Cersei would have made sure that a less recognizable weapon was used. Tyrion thinks back to Joffrey at Winterfell, telling Sandor that they should send a dog to kill a wolf, but even Joffrey wasn't stupid enough to think that Sandor would actually obey that order. So instead, Joffrey found some random guy, one of the many who hitchhiked their way north with Robert, and had stolen the knife from Robert's basically infinite luggage. Tyrion still doesn't know why Joffrey did it. That will wait for the next Jamie chapter. More urgently, Tyrion realizes that he screwed up big time by letting slip to Joffrey that he knew the truth. It's not like Joffrey needs any more reasons to hate his uncle. Joffrey and Marjorie exchange their vows and move on to the cloaks, as Tyrion avoids eye contact with Sansa lest she realize how much he still resents her refusal to kneel at their own wedding. Well, count your blessings, Tyrion, at least you got out of your wedding alive. Joffrey drapes Marjorie in her bride cloak and kisses her. Rainbow lights danced one mo once more about the High Septon's crown, as he solemnly declared Joffrey of the Houses Baratheon and Lannister, and Marjorie of House Tyrell, to be one flesh, one heart, one soul. Good, that's done with. Now let's get back to the bloody castle so I can have a piss. One flesh, one heart, one soul, one very full bladder. Aren't weddings romantic? Tyrion and Sansa join the procession once all of the many more important people have passed. Tyrion hears the mob cheering for Marjorie. After all, the Tyrells brought all the food back to King's Landing, solving the famine that they created in the first place, Tyrion thinks, only everyone seems to have forgotten that little detail. And they stepped out into the crisp autumn air. I feared we'd never escape, Tyrion quipped. Sansa had no choice but to look at him then. I, yes, my lord, as you say. She looked sad. It was such a beautiful ceremony, though. As ours was not. It was long, I'll say that much. I need to return to the castle for a good piss. Tyrion rubbed the stump of his nose. Would that I'd contrived some mission to take me out of the city. Littlefinger was the clever one. 
As it happens, Littlefinger is waiting literally right outside the city. But don't worry, Tyrion, you'll get to leave soon enough. Tyrion and Sansa join the rest of the court in offering congratulations to the newlyweds before carrying on to the Red Keep. Tyrion looks at Sansa, her pretty face sending him into his usual spiral of shame, desire, and self-loathing about the desire. He suggests that they fix their problems like any miserable couple, with an expensive vacation. He'd like to show her Casterly Rock, and also maybe get away from Joffrey for a while, lest the boy king decide to graduate from cutting up his uncle's book to cutting off his uncle's head. Sansa says only that she'll go along if it makes him happy. Tyrion jumps headfirst back into his shame spiral, hating himself for even thinking that he could make her happy. Still thinking of just how many miles he can put between himself and Joffrey, he talks about Bravos for a while, but Sansa keeps fending him off with the armor of her courtesy. Finally, they arrive at the Red Keep, and Tyrion fulfills his heroic destiny by pissing out all the morning's wine, before immediately telling Pod to start filling him back up again. The guests would soon be pouring into the throne room, full of anticipation. This would be an evening of song and splendor, designed not only to unite Highgarden and Casterly Rock, but to trumpet their power and wealth as a lesson to any who might still think to oppose Joffrey's rule. But who would be mad enough to contest Joffrey's rule now, after what had befallen Stannis Baratheon and Robb Stark? There was still fighting in the Riverlands, but everywhere the coils were tightening. Sir Gregor Clegane had crossed the Trident and seized the Ruby Ford, then captured Harrenhal almost effortlessly. Seaguard had yielded to Blackwalder Frey. Lord Randall Tarley held Maidenpool, Duskendale, and the King's Road. In the west, Sir David Lannister had linked up with Sir Forley Prester at the Golden Tooth for a march on Riverrun. Sir Ryman Frey was leading 2,000 spears down from the twins to join them, and Paxter Redwine claimed his fleet would soon set sail from the arbor to begin the long voyage around Dorne and through the Stepstones. Stannis's Lysini pirates would be outnumbered 10 to 1. The struggle that the Maesters were calling the War of the Five Kings was all but at an end. Mace Tyrell had been heard complaining that Lord Tywin had left no victories for him. Yep, it's all over. I mean, except that Stannis goes north and keeps fighting, and the Ironborn start getting a lot more ambitious, and Stoneheart's about to lead an uprising against the Freys, and the Dornish hate the Lannisters, and Littlefinger's got the veil in his back pocket, and Danny's coming over the horizon, and we haven't even gotten to young Griff yet. But sure, whatever you say, war's over. <laughs> Tyrion decides to somehow get even more drunk, going for the world record of Planetos at this point, and stops in to see Shay helping Sansa with her hair, including a net with some dark gemstones. Now, why does that sound familiar? Unimportant, moving right along. Shay asks if she can come serve at the feast. Both Sansa and Tyrion refuse her, although for very different reasons, and then they set out to join the ceremonies once again. Tyrion led Sansa around the yard to perform the necessary courtesies. She is good at this, he thought, as he watched her tell Lord Giles that his cough was sounding better, compliment Eleanor Tyrell in her gown, and question Jalabar Joe about wedding customs in the Summer Isles. His cousin Sir Lancel had been brought down by Sir Kevon, the first time he left his sickbed since the battle. He looks ghastly. Lancel's hair had turned white and brittle, and he was thin as a stick. Without his father beside him holding him up, he would surely have collapsed. Yet when Sansa praised his valor and said how good it was to see him getting strong again, both Lancel and Sir Kevon beamed. She would have made Joffrey a good queen, and a better wife if he'd had the sense to love her. He wondered if his nephew was capable of loving anyone. Yeah, probably not, but even if Joffrey had loved Sansa, she wasn't going to end up as queen after the whole her father tried to kick his twin-cest ass off the Iron Throne thing. Olena Tyrell comes up to them next, taking a moment to fix Sansa's hairnet. Oh, what a sweet old lady. No ulterior motive anywhere in sight. <laughs> Olena tells Sansa she was sorry to hear about the Red Wedding, more like sorry she wasn't told about it beforehand, and that she's finally leaving this dumpster fire of a city and returning to Highgarden. Maybe Sansa would like to come along? 
You are too kind, my lady, said Sansa, but my place is with my lord husband. Lady Olena gave Tyrion a wrinkled, toothless smile. Oh, forgive a silly old woman, my lord. I did not mean to steal your lovely wife. I assumed you'd be off leading a Lannister host against some wicked foe. A host of dragons and stags. The master of coin must remain at court to see that all the armies are paid for. To be sure. Dragons and stags. That's very clever. And dwarf's pennies as well. I have heard of these dwarf's pennies. No doubt collecting those is such a dreadful chore. I leave the collecting to others, my lady. Do you? I would have thought you might want to tend to it yourself. We can't have the crown being cheated of its dwarf's pennies now, can we? Gods forbid. Tyrion was beginning to wonder whether Lord Luther Tyrell had ridden off that cliff intentionally. If you will excuse us, Lady Olena, it is time we were in our places. Myself as well. Seventy-seven courses, I dare say. Don't you find that a bit excessive, my lord? I shan't eat more than three or four bites myself, but you and I are very little, aren't we? Shame to lose Olena from the narrative when she heads home. She's, she's just batting a thousand here. Nothing but bangers. Tyrion and Sansa finally enter the throne room and are announced by the heralds. Tyrion feels everyone staring at his battle wounds. Although they have had a while to get used to that, Tyrion might be just projecting a little bit there, although I can't blame him at this point. He has to put up with stuff like Joffrey and Marjorie riding into the throne room on snow-white horses as pages scatter rose petals before them. Ugh, I'd be drinking too. The King's Guard escorted them on to the dais, to seats of honor beneath the shadow of the Iron Throne, draped for the occasion in long silk streamers of Baratheon gold, Lannister crimson, and Tyrell green. Cersei embraced Marjorie and kissed her cheeks. Lord Tywin did the same, and then Lancel and Sir Kevon. Joffrey received loving kisses from the bride's father and his two new brothers, Loras and Garland. No one seems in any great rush to kiss Tyrion. Right? Where's the traditional smooching of the embittered pariah uncle? Can you call this a wedding? Tyrion and Sansa sit with Garland Tyrell and his wife Lyonette, a dozen seats away from Joffrey, which is still too close as far as Tyrion's concerned. Joffrey gets the drinking started, the only thing he has ever done right in his whole life, and the servers bring out the first course. Tyrion had scarcely touched the breakfast, and the wine had already gone to his head, so the food was welcome. He finished quickly. One done, 76 to come. 77 dishes. While there are still starving children in this city, and men who would kill for a radish, they might not love the Tyrells half so well if they could see us now. Well, yeah, Tyrion, that's what the walls are for. Sansa is barely eating and keeps glancing at Joffrey and Marjorie. Tyrion wonders if she's jealous and thinks she ought to be smarter than that. Oh no, she is, buddy. She's just waiting for a chance to run out on your ass. As for Tyrion, all he can see is other women. Happier women with happier men. From Alaria Sand to Marjorie's mother, Allery, to Lady Tyena Merriweather. Keep an eye on that one. And there was one woman sitting almost at the foot of the third table on the left. The wife of one of the Fossaways, he thought, and heavy with his child. Her delicate beauty was in no way diminished by her belly, nor was her pleasure in the food and frolics. Tyrion watched as her husband fed her morsels off his plate. They drank from the same cup, and would kiss often and unpredictably. Whenever they did, his hand would gently rest upon her stomach. A tender and protective gesture. Beautiful little moment. Really, really just sticks the knife into Tyrion's heart there. Tyrion thinks that if he kissed Sansa, or told her he wanted to take her virginity, she'd either flinch away or suffer through it, and he doesn't know which would be worse. So naturally, he decides to keep drinking, the cause of and solution to all of his problems. Meanwhile, the first of seven singers shows up, Hamish the Harper, who sings a little deeply out-of-character fanfic about how Renly posthumously regretted claiming the crown and returned as a ghost to defend the realm from Stannis. Marjorie seems moved, but Tyrion can only think that Simon Silvertongue didn't deserve to die for this. Well, maybe you shouldn't have killed him then. I don't know what to tell you, buddy. 
Hamish the Harbor continues to play to the crowd, singing a rose of gold for the Tyrells and for Tywin. What else? The reigns of Castamir. He's replaced by a dancing bear, no maiden fair though, and then a variety of other entertainers as the 77 courses roll out one by one. The next singer is Coley Oquanus from Tyrosh, who sings The Dance of the Dragons, the song from Game of Thrones about doomed lovers in Valyria, which Coleo sings in High Valyrian, losing the crowd before he wins them back with a drinking song Robert style. And then he does his own cover of The Reigns of Castamere. <laughs> Tyrion dreads hearing seven versions, and I agree. Unless maybe everyone does it differently, like you get a bossa nova version in there, you get a death metal version, just yeah, change it up. Tyrion turned to his wife. So which did you prefer? Sansa blinked at him. M my lord? The singers, which did you prefer? I... I'm sorry, my lord, I, I was not listening. She was not eating either. Sansa, is all to miss. He spoke without thinking and instantly felt the fool. All her kin are slaughtered and she's wed to me, and I wonder what's amiss. Well, to be fair, even if Sansa's life was awesome, would she really want to listen to multiple <laughs> versions of the Reigns of Castamere? <laughs> the food keeps coming, and so do the singers. Next up is Galeon, who follows up the earlier bullshit song about Renly with a bullshit song about Stannis. Ah, oh, they're equals at last. Galeon sings about Stannis as a dark lord jealous of the brave King Joffrey. The Dark Lord assembled his legions. They gathered around him like crows, and thirsty for blood, they boarded their ships. And cut off poor Tyrion's nose, Tyrion finished. Lady Leonette giggled. Perhaps you should be a singer, my lord. You rhyme as well as this Galeon. No, my lady, Sir Garland said. My lord of Lannister was made to do great deeds, not to sing of them. But for his chain and his wildfire, the foe would have been across the river. And if Tyrion's wildlings had not slain most of Lord Stannis' scouts, we would never have been able to take him unawares. Very nice words, Garland. Almost makes up for the Tyrells framing Tyrion in a minute here. Galeon goes on to praise Joffrey and Cersei for their courage, which is what finally wakes Sansa up to protest. By the time the singer is done, night has fallen, and the other guests are starting to catch up to Tyrion in terms of drinking, including Joffrey. The king calls for his royal jousters. As they approach, the crowd starts laughing, and Tyrion soon sees why. The jousters are dwarfs, riding a pig and a dog, respectively. Everyone is laughing and smiling except Sansa. Although Tyrion knows she's not holding back for his sake, she's just disassociating, her favorite hobby. The dwarfs are not to blame, Tyrion decided. When they are done, I shall compliment them and give them a fat purse of silver. And come the morrow, I will find whoever planned this little diversion and arrange for a different sort of thanks. Unfortunately, Tyrion will be too busy being jailed and exiled to get revenge on Littlefinger. His loving wife Sansa will have to take care of that for him. Anyway, the dwarves carry out their fake joust with a bunch of shenanigans and non-literal horseplay. Joffrey declares that the winner has to face Tyrion next. Tyrion Lannister did not remember rising, nor climbing on his chair, but he found himself standing on the table. The hall was a torchlit blur of leering faces. He twisted his face into the most hideous mockery of a smile the Seven Kingdoms had ever seen. Your grace, he called. I'll ride the pig, but only if you ride the dog. Joff scowled, confused. Me? I'm no dwarf. Why me? Stepped right into the cut, Joff. Why, you're the only man in the hall that I'm certain of defeating. He could not have said which was sweeter. The instant of shocked silence, the gale of laughter that followed, or the look of blind rage on his nephew's face. Savor it, Tyrion. That is the last time you're going to be happy <laughs> in a long, long time. Maybe ever, now that I think about it. <laughs> Joffrey quickly takes his revenge, dumping his ridiculously huge wine chalice all over Tyrion. At this point, even Tyrion knows it's time to de-escalate, but Joffrey isn't having it. 
The Tyrells sidle over to tell Joffrey he better sit down if he doesn't want to miss the 10,000th version of the Reigns of Castamere. But he says he can't lead a toast without a drink, and forces Tyrion to fill and serve the monolith from 2001 size chalice from his knees. Joffrey finally backs down when Tywin tells him to use the new shiny steel dick substitute he gave him to cut the pie. Marjorie, however, says that Joffrey's dick is too special to waste on pastry. I guess she hasn't seen American Pie, or maybe the problem is she has. Regardless, Joffrey calls forward Sir Ellen Payne, who pulls out his own shiny new sword. Sansa, once again, briefly wakes up from her living nightmare, realizes that Sir Ellen doesn't have ice anymore, and asks Tyrion what happened to her father's sword. Tyrion can't bring himself to respond, wishing only that he had sent ice back to Robb Stark after all. Well, it wouldn't have saved him, and it would now just belong to the phrase, but eh, the thought is what counts, I guess. Joffrey and Marjorie grip the sword together and cut into the pie. All the doves inside burst forth and fly around. This wedding brought to you by John Woo. Everyone gets a slice of pigeon pie with lemon cream. Despite lemons being Sansa's favorite thing ever, she's still not eating. And Tyrion offers to take her for a walk while he changes out of his wine-soaked clothes. I guess that was too much wine even for him. But before they can escape, Joffrey notices them, and demands that Tyrion continue to serve as his cupbearer. Tyrion hands over the chalice once more, and Joffrey takes a long, deep drink. The purple wine running down his chin. Purple! There it is. Check your little bingo cards for this episode. Joffrey shoves some pigeon pie in his mouth, and then starts coughing. He takes another drink of wine, but he can't swallow it and spits it back up. Marjorie says he's choking, and Olena calls on everyone to help the poor boy. Oh, who would do this to him? Garland and Osmond Kettleblack try to help Joffrey, but he's not breathing. As everyone starts either running away or yelling useless advice, Tyrion sees Joffrey clawing his throat and realizes that his beloved nephew is dying. Their eyes meet, and Tyrion realizes as if for the first time that Joffrey is only 13 years old, and that he has Jaime's eyes. Tyrion looks around for Sansa, but can't find her. He picks up the chalice and pours out the remaining wine. And just, why? Why would you do that, Tyrion? <laughs> I even think you're guilty now, and I literally have access to your thoughts. Tyrion hears Cersei scream and walks toward her, knowing that Joffrey is dead. Tywin tells Cersei so and commands her to let Joffrey go, but it takes two Kingsguard knights to pull Cersei away from her son's corpse. Marjorie Tyrell began to sob, and Tyrion heard her mother Lady Allery saying, He choked, sweetling. He choked on the pie. It was not to do with you. He choked, we all saw. He did not choke. Cersei's voice was as sharp as Sir Illyn's sword. My son was poisoned. She looked to the white knights standing helplessly around her. Kingsguard, do your duty. My lady, said Sir Loras Tyrell, uncertain. Arrest my brother, she commanded him. He did this, the dwarf. Him and his little wife. They killed my son, your king. Take them. Take them both. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 8. Who what did you think of this one, sir? A famous philosopher who we'll call Carl M. No, that's too obvious. Let's say K. Marx. <laughs> Perfect. Once said, history repeats itself. First as a tragedy, second as a farce. I really can't think of a better way to sum up the Purple Wedding, as George R. R. Martin serves up a second breakfast of murderous matrimonials, <laughs> ending the reign of King Joffrey, while most readers are still licking their wounds from the death of the King in the North. And when I say farce, it's a farce. From the ostentatious spread of food juxtaposed against a countryside half-starved, the lies and machinations that put Marjorie Tyrell in bed with Joffrey Baratheon, to the very literal farce of the jousting dwarfs. Perhaps the biggest farce of them all is the death of one of the most heinous antagonists isn't even a fist-pumping celebratory moment. The Purple Wedding is a heat check for George. 
He's feeling his oats at this point, cementing A Song of Ice and Fire as one of the most explosive works in modern fantasy. This might be a hot take, but up until this point, Tyrion has been one of the weakest POVs in A Storm of Swords. Mm -hmm. There have been great individual scenes, the introduction of Oberyn, any scene with Tyrion and Tywin. But as we've said, there's a palpable lack of momentum compared to Tyrion's chapters in the last book when he was running the show in King's Landing. And as we've also said, the reason why George is slow rolling this storyline is that he had to get the Red Wedding out of the way first. Now he has, and Tyrion's chapters suddenly go from 0 to 60. From this point on, Tyrion is the best POV in the book, with four basically perfect chapters in a row that intensify the drama to an almost unbearable degree. Seriously, his last chapter in this book is, for me, might be even harder to read than The Red Wedding. This is the peak of Tyrion's story, and one reason I like his A Dance with Dragons chapters more than his equivalent story in Season 5 of Game of Thrones is that George really takes Tyrion's downfall seriously. In the show, he bounces back quickly, I think a little too quickly, and is more or less his old self by the time he meets Danny. In the books, it feels like the pain matters more. All that said, the tone of this chapter on its own, like you say, it's pure comedy. Tyrion's misery is stretched out so agonizingly long that it becomes funny, every detail compounding to make him rage against a universe that seems biased against him. And then the universe proves it by giving Tyrion what he thinks he wants, Joffrey dying, only to ruin Tyrion's life by also framing him for it. The whole chapter is showing us the Lannisters at the peak of their power. The war is over, only to reveal at the end that they have just been climbing the first hill of a roller coaster, and they're about to go speeding down. Back in our Red Wedding episode, I discussed the overall plot structure of A Song of Ice and Fire, breaking the story into nested act structures. No need to repeat all that. But I said back then that I am amenable to the idea that the Purple and Red Weddings in conjunction are the big Act 1 climax. For a story as dense and sprawling as this, two climaxes feels appropriate. It's going to have much the same effect insofar as it alters the political reality of the narrative, while also unmooring some of our major characters to start moving them in new directions, into their own Act 2s, those being Tyrion, Sansa, and even Cersei. Another structural coherence is the fact that the rising action of this first act starts with the poisoning of John Aaron and then climaxes with Joffrey's poisoning. It's like pottery, it rhymes. <laughs> and at the very end of our act one denouement, the last Sansa chapter, it ends with the reveal on who did the initial poisoning. It does indeed feel like George is bringing down the curtain on his first act by playing all the hits, remixing previous events and providing answers long awaited, just like the dragging glass dagger from our previous episode. And most deliciously of all, the two weddings make for excellent juxtaposition to each other. The Northern Rebellion immediately crumbles in the face of the Red Wedding, while the Lannister hold on power will endure, albeit with more tragedies along the way. And that itself will reverse when we get to A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. On one hand, the Red Wedding is wholesale slaughter and butchery. The Purple Wedding, rather, is more surgical of strikes. One victim, one victim only. Both regicides are organized by a few privileged high lords, but the planning and execution vary in scope and scale. One plays out as a great tragedy, the other as a comedy, but also as a whodunit murder mystery. George may be going to the same well again, but he makes sure to differentiate the two events so that in concert, they can tell us how the Game of Thrones is played in a more comprehensive way, while also providing a different experience for the reader. It's an exercise in tone and style, I think, when you put them together like that. You take the same basic premise, King dies at a wedding, and spin it out in opposite directions. And you hit on the biggest difference. Rob's army dies with him, while Joffrey dies alone. Unless you count Dantos, and yeah, who counts Dantos? <laughs> 
That's the difference that defines all the rest, I think. The reason The Purple Wedding can play out as a satire and then a murder mystery, rather than a horror show like The Red Wedding, is because we don't have to watch anyone else die. And why is that? It's because the Kingslayers have different motivations, which leads to differences in execution, so to speak. Walter Frey ordered Rob killed because he was switching sides in the war, and that meant he had to get rid of Rob's Northmen too, because otherwise he'd have to fight them and he doesn't want to do that. That's why Tywin had to get Roose Bolton in on the plan, and that's why they had to then arrange the one-sided battles at Duskendale and the Ruby Ford, where the mountain thinned out the ranks of Stark loyalists. That logic doesn't apply here. The Tyrells don't want to wipe out Joffrey's army because they are Joffrey's army, most of it anyway. Unlike the phrase, the Tyrells aren't switching sides here, they just want to prune their side a little, make it more user-friendly. Like I said last time, the great joke of Joffrey's death is that it really doesn't matter, not in a direct political sense anyway. Everyone just takes one step over, Tommen gets the crown and marries Margarine's dead. The Tyrells don't need anything else to change. Everything that happens because of Joffrey's death, Tyrion demanding a trial by combat, and then Oberyn challenging the mountain, Tyrion killing Tywin, Jaime leaving Cersei in charge to mess everything up, the Tyrells didn't want or expect any of that to happen. So while the Red Wedding was this, this all-consuming conspiracy that, that finally paid off, and then it was over, the Purple Wedding is a relatively small plan that accidentally gets much bigger. There's a, a comedy of errors aspect to it, like this just got out of control and was never supposed to be as important as it turns out to be. While the Red Wedding was named in-universe, first heard in Davos 5, the Purple Wedding is not explicitly named. It's a moniker that exists at the metatextual level. Purple can refer to the deep color of the wine, as it is described in the books, or as the HBO show so nicely did, Joffrey's strangled, suffocated face. Purple is a very common color for a royal wedding, which is another point of distinction between this and the red one. The actual king was the groom. Purple historically has also been synonymous with Roman emperors, and while I don't think Westeros is meant to be a Roman Empire analog, it is one that is on the brink of collapse from war, disease, and ice zombies. Martin himself has stated he drew inspiration for Joffrey's death from that of Eustace IV, Count of Boulogne, from a period known as the Anarchy, a civil war between England and Normandy over the crown previously held by Henry I. Henry's daughter, the Empress Matilda, had sons whose claim to the throne were directly descended from Henry I, but the crown instead passed to King Stephen, Henry's nephew, and the aforementioned Eustace would be Stephen's heir. According to the story George cites, Eustace died quite suddenly at a dinner, possibly as God's vengeance for his harsh treatment of monks. Some say he may have choked on his dish of eels. Either way, he passed, and with the line of succession now shored up, the anarchy would shortly thereafter end, and Matilda's son Henry Plantagenet would ascend the throne in 1154 as Henry II. Eustace's death, out in the open for all to see, was ultimately believed to be accidental, though several suspected foul play from Matilda. George plays on this trend with the Purple Wedding conspirators. They had just not counted on Cersei immediately pointing the finger at Tyrion. But I think from the plotter's point of view, so much the better. <laughs> the plotters, Littlefinger and the Tyrells here, are free to continue their own agendas, while the institutionalized power now has to focus on the trial of Tyrion. There are so many instances of alleged poisoning amongst nobles and royalty that we could be here all week speaking to that. <laughs> France, in its typical indulgence, has a whole affair of poisons era in the back half of the 17th century. 
Of course, these sorts of things are always tricky to prove, especially with the more rudimentary forensics and chemistry of previous eras. One of the alleged instances includes the Guangzhou Emperor at the tail end of the Qing Dynasty in the early 20th century China. He was kept under house arrest to prevent him from doing any more modern reforms by the Dowager Empress Su Shi. He eventually died under house arrest, and many believe Su Shi may have poisoned him. I just want you to remember the Dowager Empress Su Shi because I have a feeling I will talk about her quite a bit when we get to Cersei chapters in A Feast for Crows. Their parallels extend beyond just their similar names. Looking instead at literary comparisons or allusions, Hamlet is perhaps the most obvious example of royal poisoning, though under different circumstances, and Shakespeare's plays overall are ripe with poisons, from Romeo and Juliet to the Asp in Antony and Cleopatra. We talked back in the Red Wedding episode about how George was mashing up various elements of Shakespeare's tragedies and comedies, and almost all of that is on display once again here, too. Yeah, that's all great stuff. I can't wait for uh, Cersei's chapters now. And yeah, going off what you're saying about how George is, is mixing stuff up and mashing it together, I get I get some Snow White vibes from, from how mm-hmm. the Purple Wedding uh, plays out. But uh, with the characters kind of kind of remixed from that scenario, like you get you get Cersei as the Wicked Queen to Sansa's Snow White. I think that's a pretty clear dynamic if you look at their relationship in previous books. But Elena becomes the the old woman version of the Wicked Queen who who does the poisoning, and she's not poisoning Snow White. She's manipulating Sansa as part of her plan to poison Joffrey, who used to be Sansa's kind of Prince Charming figure before he revealed his uh, his true face. And yeah, there's uh, great examples of poisoning in lots of kind of revenge plays. Uh, there's a great one, uh, The Revenger's Tragedy, where, where one character gets poisoned by another character puts a poison on a skull, and then the other character kisses the skull and gets poisoned because of it. Great stuff. But yeah, like you were saying about the, the what the little finger and the Tyrells are spinning here is they... What they're doing is setting up the Purple Wedding to look like a revenge tragedy, when that's actually not what it is. It's not that Tyrion and Sansa are motivated by those uh, classic uh, t- revenge, tragic motivations. It's that that's what the manipulators want people to think. And they, it plays into that narrative in the same way that we see uh, the recent history of the War of Five Kings playing out in, in narrative form in the songs in this chapter. Getting into the chapter itself, I think part of why these two weddings, the Red and Purple, work beyond just the plot machinations, is the clear point of view from which these events are told. We witness the building tragedy in Catelyn over her last few chapters, crystallized during the Red Wedding itself that turns from folly to horror to madness. As I mentioned last time, George is really putting us in Tyrion's head for this wedding, and we already feel that built-up drunkenness and resentment at the start, and it will only compound as the farce further unfolds. It's a different kind of system shock than Catelyn 7, and it works because George has us in a very literal different frame of mind that's perfect for this moment. Feeding that resentment for Tyrion, I'm sure, is just how incredible everything looks. Remember, a wise old lady once said the word extravagance exists to describe such things. (laughs) He notes the incredibly ostentatious crown worn by the High Septon, and he even notes that Joffrey and Marjorie look like a real royal couple. If nothing else... Joffrey looks good, and I guess it's worth pointing out that this one good trait he has does come from Jamie Lannister. Credit words deserved, absolutely. <laughs> but a royal wedding is more about ostentation and extravagance. It is a performance, a performance of power. It's not a, just a union between two people, but a statement made about the health, wealth, and viability of the ruling regime. To that end, Marjorie is presented as a maiden and Joffrey as a Baratheon, both likely lies, but they project the morality and legitimacy from which the power of the crown springs. 
George is really showing off his range here. The purple wedding is so different from the red wedding in terms of imagery. We've gone from that miserable hellish sweatbox at the twins to what looks like the greatest party on earth, for a while anyway. Right from the start of the chapter, George is trying to dazzle you with the, the rainbow light off the crystal crown, the sense of the gods themselves honoring this occasion. Speaking of which, you've also got the, the gilded statues of the gods and the fancy clothes everyone's wearing described in detail and at great length. I love how George describes the guests as a river of silk, satin, and velvet, giving you not only a sense of the beauty, but also the movement of it, everything undulating like a river. Tommen is throwing rose petals, like that, like that, uh, the meme of SpongeBob, just throwing rose petals in Squidward's <laughs> face. That's just what I picture Tommen here, just skipping along, la la la. Uh, Elena is wearing a cloth of gold gown that looks like it weighs more than she does, which is an interesting color choice. You see that with Marjorie's uh, gold kind of rose petals as well, that the Tyrells are trying to fuse their imagery with the Lannister imagery in this moment, the, the kind of the colors in common. George famously said that this kind of vivid, colorful imagery is the real reason we read fantasy, even more than the stories underneath. He indulges in it here even as he weaponizes it, showing us how this imagery is politically charged, representing a narrative being cemented in public view. Tyrion is 100% right that the Tyrells really shouldn't get credit for ending the famine they started, but it doesn't matter, they do. The Lannisters were blamed for the lack of food in the last book because they were visible, they were on the scene, and also because Joffrey was so personally, ostentatiously awful, which the Tyrells never are. After all, the Tyrells are good politicians, above all else. And for all Tyrion's cleverness, he hasn't been able to create his own lasting narrative. Of course, that's in large part because he has to deal with unreasoning hatred from both the masses and his own family. But as we've said before, there's a self-fulfilling aspect to this, where Tyrion has internalized the world's hatred of him, and so never even tries to shake up his own image anymore. He doesn't seize credit like the Tyrells do, even if it's for something they don't deserve credit for. He's so used to being ostracized that he's come to enjoy it on some level, if only because it helps him forget how much he still really wants their respect. If everyone hates Tyrion because they're all such hypocrites, well, at least he can honestly despise them for their hypocrisy. But Tyrion's cynicism barely covers up the hurt, the desire for recognition. My favorite example is when he thinks when everyone's engaging their little courtly kisses, he thinks no one seemed in any great rush to kiss Tyrion. It's funny because it's just so juvenile, like, where are my wedding smooches? But it's also so sad because it exposes how thoroughly Tyrion is motivated by the lack of love in his life. If Tywin and Cersei had loved him properly, treated him like he mattered, Tyrion might not look at the world like a minefield, at least not to the same degree. But the resentment doesn't just apply to them, it applies to the entire city. When he thinks that he saved Joffrey's crown, it echoes what he'll think during his trial. I saved this city and all your worthless lives from Stannis, and maybe I shouldn't have. All of the beautiful imagery is there in part just for the contrast with Tyrion stewing at the middle of it all, hating everyone, and also hating himself for hating them, just around and around endlessly. Yeah, Tyrion's grouchy intoxication comes through in George's italicized text, Little asides to himself as he stews about Joffrey, the crown he wears, and the bride he marries, all thanks to the unrecognized sacrifice of Tyrion himself. Some of this also spills over toward Sansa, remembering his own terrible wedding not long ago. This is yet another sign of the wine dulling his wits, his hyperfixation and main character syndrome at play. None of this to say that Tyrion isn't valid in his resentment, but we the reader can appreciate that Tyrion is more prickly and off-kilter than normal. I do think tracking Tyrion's resentments is an important part of his journey. 
His anger at Liza Aaron unleashed the mountain clans in the Vale. His explosion at the trial will lead to the dissolution of the Tywin hegemon. And we on this podcast expect Tyrion's resentments towards Westeros to have an influence on Daenerys Targaryen's attempted conquest thereof. When Tyrion is wronged, he tends to, whether intentionally or not, make it everyone else's problem. And that isn't to call Tyrion a villain or a bad guy. Not yet, anyways. Our intimacy with his point of view allows us to know that Tyrion is put upon, is unfairly treated, and deserves more kindness and love than he has ever been afforded. The dramatic pull is in part the tension we feel between the injustices inflicted upon Tyrion and those he has and may in the future unleash as recompense. Sometimes, when drunk, we tend to get tunnel vision, hyperfixate on just one thing, another drink, finding a dancing partner, does anyone have any weed so we can get crossfaded? <laughs> For Tyrion, it's the dagger reveal from the previous chapter, which George out and out confirms here. Tyrion is focused on the why of it. A combination of outright cruelty plus a twisted sense of mercy with a sprinkling of Joffrey thinking he's so clever. Like we discussed last time, it reveals little about the characters at play, but did want to highlight that George wraps a little bow on this before moving on with the event. And I know Tyrion must be drunk when he peers over at Sir Loras as Marjorie's protection from Joffrey. He wonders if Loras will be up to the task, but he is forgetting the Tyrell House words. Sisters are doing it for themselves. <laughs> It'll be the women, or, especially, or specifically Olena, who will protect Marjorie. Though Marjorie herself is no novice to the Game of Thrones, already racking up her second royal wedding in as many years. She's shown the ability to win the mob, which in itself has reflected better on Joffrey and helped secure the Tyrell place at the highest level of Westerosi government. It doesn't hurt that food is once again flowing into the city, a flow that was denied by the Tyrells themselves prior to the Blackwater political realignment. Tyrion can't help but resent that irony too. For, say, a random modern-day comparison, it'd be like getting credit for opposing the torture of enemy combatants from an illegal war that you yourself voted for. You know, just a random example. <laughs> mm -hmm. Tyrion's exchange with Sansa, by the way, is a beautiful mess of creepiness, bitterness, and sadness. He can't help but linger on Sansa's looks, a beauty only enhanced by tragedy, making her feel like a player in an ancient Greek myth. But his attempts at connection are empty and thus thwarted. While his heart may be in the right place, he doesn't think about what the rock would mean to Sansa Stark. It's the birthplace of nearly all those who have caused her suffering. And all these failed outreaches just embitter Tyrion more. You can tell he's not not thinking about Tysha when he wonders if he's ever made a woman smile without the help of gold. George really sells that disconnect by not even detailing Tyrion's offer of taking Sansa to Braavos. Instead, he just kind of yada yadas past it because there's nothing there of value between the two. The back and forth between Tyrion's thoughts and his words that you mentioned earlier, that, that cuts real sharp here. Because he's not only trying to get past the Red Wedding, he's trying to get past Taisha and Shay, but he can't tell Sansa that. Fear of rejection is what's waiting under the whole Lannister thing. It's what links Tywin's war crimes to Cersei's manipulations to the damage Jaime drags like an exoskeleton behind him everywhere he goes. Every one of them fears what, what Kevon faces at the end. Uncle Kevon, the ultimate Lannister toady who never questioned what he did for the Lion Pack. And then he faces Varys... Not only killing him, but telling him he's irrelevant and actually his own his competence is what got him killed. What happens, the Lannisters think, if we get caught out beyond our defenses, whether military or psychological, and are exposed as not only fragile, but ridiculous, not even tragic, but a fucking farce? And they all project it onto Tyrion. 
who cannot ever talk to Sansa without imagining her hating him for doing it. A psychological reaction that I think is worth pointing out, it's specific to him, regardless of how Sansa actually feels about him in that moment. It's something he keeps envisioning, imagining himself as her having contempt for him. She's falling back on her courtesies, giving nothing but the bare minimum, which leaves him alone to imagine. And all Tyrion can imagine is rejection, that he will always tie to his worth. And worth, I think, is the key question for Tyrion going forward. What is his life worth to the people around him? And once they finally prove that it means nothing to them, what is his life worth to him? Tyrion soaks in the opulence of the event as he continues to soak in the wine, but he's kind of wondering who this performance is for now that the war is quote-unquote won. All the other military campaigns seem over and done. Rob Stark is gone, and Gregor Kagan's mock-up crew is handling any loyalist stragglers. River Run is about to come under siege, and a red wine fleet is heading for Dragonstone. All plot threads we will pick up in A Feast for Crows. But there are threats and tragedies unforeseen, from the death of Joffrey at the end of this chapter, to Tywin at the end of the book, to the perceived threat of the Tyrells and the actual threat of the Sparrows, which will really rock the Lannister hold come A Feast for Crows. And even the first-time reader at this point knows about Danny and Mance, the White Walkers, all sorts of threats the regime would eventually have to deal with. But for the moment, it looks like Cersei's coup against Robert way back in Book 1 has fully and finally succeeded, in that there is no immediate threat to Lannister rule. It's a pivot point in the story, away from the direct conflict between roughly equally matched sides, and towards guerrilla conflict, cold war in the capital, and distant threats gradually looming closer. In retrospect, the real reason the Lannister-Tyrell alliance has to trumpet its power here isn't to scare anyone into backing down, it's to pretend that there are no internal conflicts, that they have a united front. But that is just not the case, and the rest of Tyrion's chapters in this book are all about proving that. What also stands out in reread is the punchline, Maesterell complaining that Tywin left no victories for him. Because that's, <laughs> that's all this is for Maesterell, just the chance to add another notch to that one time that he thinks he won a battle when actually it was Randall Tarly. And Mace knows that, so he wants something real for himself, and he's not going to get it. Another feast table he can lay siege to like he did outside Storm Sun. Exactly, his favorite kind of battle. <laughs> Sansa, as we'd expect, acquits herself quite well exchanging formalities ahead of the feast. Tyrion notices Olena fussing with Sansa's hairnet and saying some words about how ghastly it is to kill men at weddings. <laughs> Maybe the most consequential few sentences in all of A Storm of Swords. I feel like we should add George playing fair to the not a cast bingo card because mm -hmm. that's all he's doing here. Sansa will continue to fiddle with her hairnet during the wedding feast, which can be interpreted as George's fingers pointing you directly at the murder weapon. There's nothing funnier than Olena saying, you shouldn't kill men at weddings, literally as she does that. <laughs> it's like Roos passing on Jamie's regards. There is no actual in-universe reason for Olena to say this at all, other than that she's just having fun with it. <laughs> as always with the Tyrells, I, I get the sense Olena is being genuine and phony at the same time. She probably really does think Sansa has suffered enough and would benefit from a Highgarden vacation. But she also wants to get Sansa out of town before anyone starts asking inconvenient questions about the murder weapon. And here is the proof that Littlefinger kept his own plans for Sansa completely hidden from the Tyrells, despite colluding with them regarding Joffrey. That's all beneath the surface, though. Again, the actual tone of the scene is funny, as Elena tears Tyrion to shreds with courtesy, like she's got those, those claws you tear a meat with when it's soft. That's all she's just doing to Tyrion here. And all he can do is stand there and smile and wonder if she drove her husband off that cliff. As with the line about killing men at weddings, a lot of what makes Olena so fun is her, her brazen, cheerful hypocrisy. 
She calls the wedding feast excessive as if she didn't have a huge part in planning it. Elena's not any more honest than the Lannisters, she just plays the game better than they do, and so gets away with murder while Tyrion takes the fall. And yeah, I love the bit where Sansa's working the yard and you get to see that she is also a very good politician, if a novice relative to Olena. She knows exactly what to say, who to say it to, what kind of effect she's trying to have. She asks questions, she gives compliments, and even though she is basically reading lines from a script, it feels genuine to the people listening, which is the key. George lingers on the bit with Kevon and Lancel. Remember, these are Lannisters, the enemy, the family that killed off Rob and Catelyn. But Sansa knows how to make even them happy. She sees not only Lancel's fragility, but Kevon's concern about it, and makes them both light up by praising Lancel's strengths. Do they actually believe her deep down? Who knows, probably not, but they're giving her credit for the effort. And that is a lot of the job of a noble lady. And Tyrion realizes, as if for the first time, that Sansa Stark was not just put on this earth to suffer beautifully. As she thought during the Blackwater, she knows how to make them love her. Hey, not too far off from Marjorie. Tyrion even thinks that Sansa could have made Joffrey a good queen if he'd only had the sense to love her. I mean, and if he hadn't had her dad beheaded in front of her and then fought a war against her brother, etc. Every couple has problems, clearly. But the point is that this is another projection of a better life for Tyrion. Even now, married to Sansa, he can only imagine her better off in an alternate dimension where Joffrey is husband material. I can imagine how tedious the proceedings must be for someone as drunk as Tyrion at this point. (laughs) All the matching and kissing and official embraces to sew up the Lannister-Tyrell match. But hey, at least there are hotties, especially Tyrell hotties. Tyrion lusting over Marjorie and her cousins and her mom is just slightly less uncouth than his observation of Sansa's beauty earlier. But he's free to ogle and eat and drink, as Tyrion and Sansa have been placed far, far away from the royal couple. And Tyrion's not just horny, he's lonely. He feels trapped in this loveless marriage and can't help but long for a more honest and happy relationship. Maybe my favorite part of the chapter is when he zooms in on a woman whose name we never learn and probably never will. She's the wife of one of the Fossaways, Tyrion thinks, and we don't even learn which one. It doesn't matter. They're archetypal figures for Tyrion, standing in for the projected ideal of not only romantic love, but domestic bliss. This nameless woman is pregnant, but she's not letting that get in the way of her good time. She's eating, she's laughing at all their performers. She and her husband share food and kiss often, his hand resting on her stomach, both tender and protective, George writes. You can feel the world shrinking down to just the two of them. And that's enough to keep them happy. That inner peace that comes with intimacy. Something Tyrion has always been denied, and has increasingly begun to just deny himself automatically. The misery here isn't that Tyrion cannot kiss his wife. It's that if he does, he'll know the whole time that she does not want to kiss him back. And that makes it such a <laughs> hollow farce compared to those that, that, that lovely couple he keeps looking at. Exactly. The obscene breath of this feast makes itself plain right away, as Sansa just nibbles on her first dish, saving room for the 76 more to come. (laughs) Auspicious number, all these sevens, Mm -hmm. for the seven gods. It's as much a performance as the High Septon's new crown. This is how the new regime projects political, specifically religious, legitimacy onto the kingdoms. Targaryen exceptionalism meant that family line had a whole different relationship to the gods than the other lords of Westeros. The Tyrells and Lannisters and Baratheons don't have that luxury, and thus their relationship with the Faith becomes a more important one and a more harrowing one, as we'll see in A Feast for Crows. Being godly, it would seem, does not mean spreading the food around to the poor of the city. The the contrast of material conditions couldn't be more severe. 
It's food for food's sake, not for making sure everyone's hunger is met. I like the show's addition of Marjorie saying the scraps will go to the poor, only for Cersei to reverse that sheerly out of spite. <laughs> yes, Cersei sucks, but also the ruling elite don't want to show that they do, in fact, have enough to make sure that no one starves. They just don't care that they do. Throughout this part of the chapter, George is constantly cutting back and forth between descriptions of the food and descriptions of the entertainment, all to emphasize that the food is for show as much as the performers are. It's not like our main characters are enjoying the meal, even though the food sounds so much tastier than the Red Wedding, and that's fine as far as the powers that be are concerned. It's not about you eating the food, it's about the fact that the food is there, that you could eat it if you wanted to. And my favorite part of this is when Tyrion notices the, the juxtaposition between the blood sausage and the juggler with all the swords and axes. It's, it's so funny because it's basically George congratulating himself for his own metaphor. Tyrion thinks the juxtaposition is passing clever, if not in the best of taste, like he's a snooty literary critic reviewing George's work here. <laughs> the juggler could cut off his own limbs at any moment, and it would fit right in with the blood sausages. The guests would just eat him up and ask for more. At one point, a man from the Reach stabs a Dornishman, and just like the Dothraki wedding early on in the story, the party just keeps going. Behind the cook lurks the butcher. Beneath the rose waits the thorns. This is the greatest party on earth, but it's about to become a crime scene. You mentioned the uh, High Septon's crown again that we focus on in the, the opening sentence of the chapter. And it's, it's so beautiful, it's catching the light, it's so huge, but then Tyrion reminds us that we, that's only so big and beautiful as to make us forget that the last one was smashed by the mob. That's what's waiting underneath this whole thing. And I really like your comparison to the Dothraki wedding at the in the earlier book, because a lot of the people of Westeros would look down on Dothraki culture, but we're seeing a lot of the same uh, things on display, even though it's just a different context. The meals and songs come in a deluge from here. Fun and food blurring together, at one level tedium, and on another overwhelming and overstimulating. The number of dishes only exceeded by the number of singers who sang The Reigns of Castamere. There's also plenty of new songs written for the event, most commemorating the recent triumphs of House Lannister. Triumphs that exclude Tyrion's contributions, though Garland Tyrell is quick to say that his deeds may be unsung, but his actions with the wildfire and winch are known all the same. God, Ga Garland is so cool. <laughs> My boyfriend's back. As is his wife, Leonette, who humors Tyrion as well, and not unkindly. Tyrion actually feels good after this, which might be the only non-alcohol-induced moment of joy all chapter. What human connection can do for you. And yeah, uh, absurdly grateful, George writes. That's how Tyrion feels when Garland gives him credit. Absurdly grateful, which is exactly how Sansa felt mm. when Garland danced with her at her wedding and took the time to make her laugh. George used that same phrase, absurdly grateful. Like, being grateful feels so, so out of context in miserable events like these. It's not only that Garland is being kind to Tyrion, which pretty much no one else is willing to do, it's that Garland is telling the truth about what happened at the Blackwater, which also no one is willing to do. Tywin called Tyrion's chain a clever stroke, just the contempt dripping from those words. But Garland emphasizes that if it weren't for Tyrion, Stannis would have taken the city and the throne. Tywin and the Tyrells would have been too late to stop him. It's very chivalric on Garland's part here. He's being, he's being humble and honest, a true knight among a bunch of false friends. But for all Garland's honesty here, it's worth noting that he was the guy in Renly's armor, as we find out later in the book, so he is not above lying when it helps the narrative along. Speaking of which, another one of my favorite parts of the chapter is the songs that are sung specifically about the Baratheon bros, Renly and Stannis. Here George is showing us how the winners are rewriting history, art being bent to serve a political purpose. And we get another passing clever juxtaposition, as George would say, between these songs and also between them and the reality of the narrative we've been reading. 
First, we get Hamish the Harper's song about Renly, in which Renly repented of his attempt to take the crown and came back to life to save Joffrey from Stannis. And that would be ridiculous even if Renly's ghost was a real thing, because as Tyrion says, Renly never repented for a thing in his life. He would have eventually torn down the Lannisters to take power, Stannis just got to Renly first. And if Renly rose from the dead like Lazarus, he wouldn't be visiting Marjorie to say farewell, as Hamish sings. He'd be visiting Loras, his actual lover who buried Renly's actual body. And then there's Galeon's song about Stannis, in which he's basically Scar from the Lion King, the most dark lord who ever dark lorded. Stannis is framed as simply envious of Joffrey, with no mention of the twincest, of course. It's hilarious that, that Stannis' black hair, what little of it he has, is counted against him, oh, black hair and a black soul, as the singer goes, when the reality is that Stannis' black hair is what makes his case. It marks him as Robert's heir relative to Joffrey and his hair of gold that is valorized in the song. Black of hair and black of soul. Hey, Robert and Renly also had black hair. What about them? But the bard's truth is not the same as what really happened. And songs are not written in a vacuum. Just as Fire and Blood, the conceit of Fire and Blood is that it's, it's meant for the Baratheon regime. It's being written with them in mind. These songs were written with a specific audience in mind. It's politically useful for this regime to pretend Renly came back from the dead to support the Lannisters. Because that helps everyone forget the inconvenient little detail that most of the lords here backed Renly over Joffrey at the start of the war. Now we have a narrative where the Lannister-Tyrell alliance was so inevitable that death itself could not stop it from happening. It's also politically useful to pretend like Stannis is just evil and declared war on Joffrey so he could drink blood from his skull or some Euron shit like that. That way we can pretend that Joffrey and Cersei were the heroes who defied Stannis, once more ignoring Tyrion, the one Lannister who was heroic at the Blackwater. At least to bring Sansa and Tyrion together when they can say, uh, Joffrey and Cersei never did that, they never behaved that heroically, and Tyrion just says, never believe anything you hear in a song. And it's great because the reality, I think, of Renly and Stannis is that they had a lot more in common than either one of them would really admit. And they were very stubborn and prideful and childish, and that's what brought them down. And Stannis got to Renly first, but Renly could have easily killed Stannis there at Storm's End if things had gone a little differently. But no, that's that's not convenient at all to you for the Lannisters. we got to have Renly the perfect ghost who came back to save us, and Stannis who was just going mohaha over his crystal ball the whole time. That's, that is what is going to please this crowd, and so that, that becomes... That becomes the canon. That becomes what happens now. We've we've established it. Yeah, and I feel like some of that also can describe Tyrion and Sansa. They probably have a little mm -hmm. more in common than they let on. And if they explored, you know, maybe those commonalities, they wouldn't be so estranged from each other. It's at this point in the chapter where the reader realizes it's not just Tyrion who is drunk. The king is as well. And his words are thick as he introduces the dueling dwarves representing House Baratheon and Stark to raucous laughter from all. Well, all except Sansa Stark, who is so distanced from these events, she may as well be Jamie Lannister watching Ned Stark's father and bro brother burn. <laughs> the whole folly with Penny and Grote is the apex of power as performance, as the actual dance between the players of the Game of Thrones is now abstracted back into an explicit performance, satirized and parodied. History as a farce, yet again. It's almost as if Joffrey is mocking the very structures and beliefs that have secured his throne, and in a way, he will be struck down for this hubris. Well, tragedy plus time equals comedy, as, as you were getting at. And, and just like the songs that I was talking about retrofitted the Baratheon bros, the older Baratheons, into supporting characters in the story of Joffrey, protagonist of reality, the same applies to this joust. It, it suits the overall project, that it, it casts your enemies 
not even as a horror show, not even as this fearsome villain like they were just talking about Stannis, but as a joke, as people who were who were always designed to lose to us, who were the kind of people we can look down on and, and laugh at, and we were always inevitably going to be the winners. And it, it, it makes it, it makes the war that's that's been over look like it was never something you had to be afraid of at all. And it can be hard to remember in this moment that the, the Lannister regime came very close to the brink of collapse within hours during the Battle of Blackwater. All these dominoes had to fall just so. And now it's like, look, we're just basking in our glory. At, at the, they, they were the remnants of our, our idiot opponents. It's all over. And of course, this is also a, a humiliation designed very specifically for Tyrion by Littlefinger, as it, as it later turns out. When we, when we hear from Sansa that Littlefinger is the one who walked Joffrey into this to help uh, frame Tyrion for the murder that's about to come. And there's also looking at, at what uh, Penny and Groot uh, do for the crowd at, at, at the, the actual show they're putting on. At one point, there's a lot of innuendo involved, and there is also, I think, a, a sexual nature to the humiliation that Tyrion is thought of as less than a man or not sexually correct or proper because of his size and now there the show just reinforces that that the the sexuality of people of this height and of this shape or is, is not is, is is just fit for a joke it's not it's not real you don't have to worry about them and their dignity this they're just a joke and this is just designed to to make Tyrion fester and smolder hate Joffrey more than ever and it's also an insight into his psychology that he, he has to think to himself, okay, the dwarves are not to blame. Like, there's a moment when he's angry enough to blame them, too. And he has to consciously remind himself that's not. I should have solidarity with them. They're not the ones I hate. But as we'll see when he meets up with Penny, his actual feelings are a lot more complicated. Because part of Tyrion does hate Penny for also being a dwarf and for reflecting that back at him. And I think you can see that here. Yeah. And this is one of the spots the show escalated the things mm-hmm. with the dwarf child. I think it actually worked that they kind of roped it into the whole War of the Five Kings. Yeah, that's true. And because they were going for this big whodunit mystery and everyone hating Joffrey, um, through that performance, they were able to get like why Sir Loras might want, uh, you know, Joffrey dead, why Marjorie yes, might want him dead. Good yes, point. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, it creates a lot of motivations that kind of helps the tone they were going for. So that's one of the cases where the show actually ratcheting, ratcheting up the drama actually really played well into what they were doing. Agreed. But if the joust was the sublimated aspect of power politics rising to the surface, then Joffrey singling out Tyrion creates a continental rift. The political becomes entirely personal, as the trading of barbs eventually leads to Joffrey upending wine all over Tyrion, a public act of shaming and degradation. Once again, gotta give a nod to Garland for warning Tyrion and even saying something to Joffrey's face. Tyrion tries to be gracious, which is an incredible feat knowing how drunk and angry he is, and gives Joffrey an out. But Joffrey is as stupid as he is vicious and doesn't take the hint. Even attempts by the Tyrells to drag him back to the evening's frivolities can't distract Joffrey from tormenting his uncle. Coming back on reread, you see why otherwise neutral people might think Tyrion guilty after this, because Joffrey's just begging Tyrion to kill him at this point. He's just laying out the motive so clearly for everyone to see in public view, just the the humiliating, degrading treatment of Tyrion, making fun of him for his size, forcing him into this kind of subservient class position, just pouring the wine all over him. Which is it, just like, as we'll get to in a bit, Joffrey's death is kind of an ironic, be careful what you wish for thing for Tyrion. It's the same with the wine, because like Tyrion, you've been drinking wine all day. You've been trying to fill yourself up with wine. Well, now Joffrey shows you what that looks like, and now you're just covered in wine. This is kind of, it's it's an ironic fate. It's This is what you get for for uh, indulging too much in drinking, as he always does at this point in his life. And Tyrion does, does lash back once he gets his sweet, sweet revenge on Joffrey, making fun of him uh, to the whole crowd. Although even then, Tyrion is still 
still has to undercut himself. He still has to say, you're the only man in the hall I'm certain of defeating. So saying, yeah, I'd kick your ass, but also kind of humbling and scraping before everyone else and saying, but I couldn't beat any of you up. Because that's that's the only reason he gets the laugh in that moment is because they are still kind of laughing at him, even though they're also laughing at Joffrey. And Joffrey just can't have that, can't stand being laughed at. He has that in common with Tywin. Again, that fear of rejection that, that defines the Lannisters as a whole. Joffrey is not, a, not immune to that. And he... What he does here, it's not just that he humiliates and shames Tyrion, it's that he breaks public face. He looks bad in a way that's bad for everyone. He he looks not just harsh, but childish and petty and someone who is it's embarrassing to work for. That's what that's who Joffrey looks like in this moment, and that's not that's not okay <laughs> for everyone here. Like the whole the whole idea of of Renly is that he looks like someone you're okay working for. That's why people were with him. And Joffrey in this moment makes people look around and go, This is not I don't want to be in this kind of room. And Tyrion picks up on that. And to Tyrion's credit, he's like, that's not good for me either. That's not good for any of us. And so Tyrion, as drunk and angry and as much of a reason as he has to hate Joffrey, he actually tries to, he's the one who starts to back it down here and say, well, I'm sorry you slipped and tripped and poured the wine all over me, your grace. Obviously not what happened, but it's enough of a cover. And even then Joffrey's like, I did not trip. And when Tyrion tries to pretend it's an honor being his cupbearer, just trying to, like, let's fold this into a, consen- a vaguely consensual thing so we can get back to having fun, Joffrey refuses to do it. And in part, it's just he's obnoxious and stubborn and childish. But also, it reveals the Joffrey problem politically is that he does not care about playing along and making you feel good for following him. And that just, that is, even if he hadn't died here, I think that is the ultimate political weakness of Joffrey as a king. No, I think that's a very good point. It's almost like the Joffrey political project dies minutes before Joffrey dies because on top of the extravagance, it's not just the Lannisters are like showing their performance of power, but it's also that these other lords have come here and they're showing, yes, we're buying into what you're projecting. And by the fact that Joffrey is completely losing face and showing that he's a little shit, it makes them be like, oh, well, (laughs) do I really want to do that? And especially when shit falls apart after Tywin dies, you can see why they're going to be reluctant to, you know, throw in with Cersei or Kevon or whoever, uh, you know, kind of secedes this current version of the regime. The torment only ends when the pie arrives, announced by Pywin Lannister, <laughs> trying to wrangle the situation himself. I guess it's less that the torment ends and more that it briefly Sansa's turn to despair, taking nert- note of Sir Ilan's sword that looks a lot like ice, but is not ice. <laughs> Another salt in Sansa's wounds, and another regret Tyrion has about this whole mummer's farce in honor of his nephew. All right, who's ready to celebrate a child's death? (laughs) Me, me, put me in, coach, I'm ready. (laughs) During the Red Wedding, we talked about the audio assault of the proceedings. Not just the terrible music and the drumming giving rhythm to the chapter, but the cacophony of slaughter that followed. The Purple Wedding is something else entirely. A field of shouts broken by one boy's coughs and gurgling noises, and worse besides, with the occasional cries for help, including from Olena, who knows how to play the game. (laughs) There's even a parallel between Joffrey clawing out his neck to Catelyn clawing off her face, the last grasp of sanity as death takes you. Right when Tyrion thinks, he's gonna die is when Tyrion's own internal narration starts to refer to Joffrey as the boy or as Cersei's son instead of the king. Because in this moment, all of that other stuff, the appearances and performance that define this event, have fallen away and all there is is a dying boy and his despairing mother. 
Several years ago, I penned a guest article for our friends over at Watchers on the Wall, which, by the way, uh, RIP Watchers on the Wall, you guys did great work over many years, and I wish you all the best. Yes, indeed. Anyways, I wrote about Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 2, The Lion and the Rose, the Purple Wedding episode, and I spoke about Joffrey's death being a pirate victory, anything but a cheer-worthy moment. And I got a lot of pushback on that, which, you know, I get. Joffrey Baratheon is maybe a top three all-time shit in the Western canon, <laughs> and the wonderfully heightened portrayal by Jack Gleason on the most popular show on the planet only further built animosity towards the character. Gleason's age, being older than Book Joffrey, also perhaps makes audience more willing to celebrate his death. So like at one level, that relief or joy is understandable. But as George is wont to do, he compels this thoughtful reader to think a little bit harder, pick at the scab a little more. The theme of vengeance, its ugliness and emptiness, is going to be ascendant in the next part of the story, perhaps best personified by Lady Stoneheart, but also seen through things like the Dornish plot. The first instinct might be to treat this, the Purple Wedding and Joffrey's death, as recompense or justice, or just flat-out revenge, for the Red Wedding. But this falls flat for many reasons. Nothing here brings back the King in the North, or the thousands butchered at the Twins. The Northern cause is no stronger in the wake of Joffrey's death as it was prior to it. And lest we forget, Joffrey really had nothing to do with the Red Wedding either. Yeah, his celebration of it was infuriating, but he isn't the one who ordered or conspired to bring it about, and it's not the people who suffered at the Red Wedding who are planning this conspiracy against him, either. And the Lannister regime, ostensibly, is no less weakened for it. Yes, their rule will fall apart, but Joffrey's death is a contributing factor as opposed to an instigating one. There's a chance Joffrey's death gets treated as an accident, we can thank or blame Cersei for nipping that in the bud, and the Tyrell-Lannister alliance continues through a marriage pact between Tommen and Marjorie. This has infinite upside for the Lannisters, as the de facto head of government, Tywin, stays in charge, and the king now is a lot more pliant and less likely to muck things up. So there's no real semblance of justice here, and even by vengeance standards, it falls short of satisfaction. And now we can forget all the political ramifications and just think on a young child choking to death in his mother's arms. Even if the murder of Joffrey did result in political wins, this is a horrifying sight. The boy is only 13, thinks Tyrion. The guy with most reason to rejoice at the death of his nephew. He notes that Joffrey has Jaime's eyes, connecting the king to the one true friend Tyrion has. In spite of everything else we feel about Joffrey, his humanity is still centered in these last moments. It's the human heart in conflict with itself that drives these characters, that drives our love for these characters, to watch how they act on the battles raging on in their own interiority. But George abstracts that one level up, recursively up to the reader, whose heart is now in conflict. I'm confused, Marge. Is this a good ending or a bad ending? <laughs> it's an Should ending. Be... That's enough. <laughs> Should we be thrilled or nonplussed? Where is the catharsis? There really isn't any, because before the dust settles, it all turns on Tyrion. He just barely noticed that Sansa is no longer there, and absentmindedly spills out the wine cup. I mean, what catharsis can we have when inside Tyrion's head, we know he didn't do this thing, but it is he who bears the brunt of Cersei's rage and allegations. 
You should have left when you had a chance, dude. Should have left a long time ago. And, uh, of course, Cersei would always blame him. I think even the first-time reader can figure that out without the benefit of all the, the Valonqar stuff we learn about in A Feast for Crows. But Tyrion walks right into the trap by, by pouring out the wine there, something we'll see again on a larger scale at the trial, where all the enemies he made on his path to power, whether understandably or not, are, are turned against him. And again, he's he's drunk. I remember how drunk Tyrion is. He's he's just kind of wandering in a kind of a numb, dreamlike state that we're also going to see from Sansa at the start of the next chapter. Uh, she's a little less drunk, though, so that helps. So Tyrion is definitely not at his best. Doesn't have his, his rational, cutting-edge mind to help him out here. And this is this is a scene, Joffrey's death, where I very clearly remember my first time through. Because I remember as soon as Joffrey started coughing, I was like, that's it. <laughs> that's it right there. Guy doesn't just start coughing in the middle of a scene for, for no reason. Uh, and you And it's just... This the slow screws turning as you you watch it happen and you watch any kind of any kind of thrill just kind of leached out of it in part just because of how long it takes and how detached and numb Tyrion's perspective is it's it's almost dreamlike it's this this wish coming true for Tyrion it's the 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 nephew he hated that he feared was gonna turn on him one day to kill him I mean Tyrion was just planning to run away from Joffrey and now he doesn't have to but it just becomes a nightmare as it goes on. And it's not, it's not about redeeming Joffrey or even complicating him, really. Um, you know, as opposed to, like, the, the songs that were being sung about uh, Stannis and Renly. We'll get our own version of that with Joffrey when Pycelle says at the trial, he was the best boy the gods ever put on this earth. That's the canon that's going to appear about Joffrey. We know that's not true, and that's, that's not going to be changed because of this. It's more... It's just a reminder of how vulnerable he still was, that there was, there was nothing Joffrey could have done to protect himself from this. With all, all the power he was drunk literally on and otherwise, with all the, the future ahead of him as the, the figurehead of this glorious eternal regime, and he could be struck down like anybody else. And, and watching him kind of claw at his throat, realizing how young he was, it doesn't take away from the horror of the decisions he made and the impact on people like Sansa, but it reminds you that Joffrey just Joffrey had no clue what he was doing, really. Like, Joffrey was out of control, and in the same way that I've said about the Mad King before, I don't even really blame Joffrey as much as I do Cersei and Robert to an extent, and everyone who just said, yeah, fine, and the Kingsguard who beat people on his orders. Like, Joffrey, especially since he's just younger than his character in the show, he can't he's there's a, there's a limit to how much damage Joffrey can do on his own like he's not Magor he was never going to get on a dragon and go kill everybody like he needed people to carry out his orders and they did and now all those people are around him and can't help him and there is something chilling and haunting about watching Joffrey realize that his powerlessness at the end and I just love the the ambiguity of his hand reaching out and Tyrion thinks is he pointing to me is accusing me or is he trying to get my forgiveness and it's probably pointing it's probably accusatory as it like very clearly is in the show uh but it's haunting i think that Tyrion even thinks that at the end that some part of him is still like oh you're still my family how horrible <laughs> how horrible is that to feel in this moment but that, that's what you're left with moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork we talk about George playing fair with the audience, and he literally gives the game away when Tyrion says Littlefinger was the clever one because of a contrived mission to take him from the city. This is literally Sansa's deliverance spelled out for us <laughs> one chapter before it occurs. Great little uh, little in-joke, little wink from George to catch on reread. And it's also one of those 
I, as I've said before, I think one of George's great skills as a writer is keeping uh, characters in your head when they're off off page or they haven't been introduced yet at all in many cases. And Littlefinger has been gone from the action for a while now in A Storm of Swords, actually. And I think George is putting things in there like that just to remind you, hey, Littlefinger, still important to the story, about to become more important than ever. So you don't, uh, you're not totally thrown off when he comes back and it doesn't feel as, as artificial as it might otherwise. So moving into theory and discussion. Spoilers, I guess. It was Elena who did it. <laughs> it wasn't the butler. It was Elena. It was the grandma all along, uh, as will be confirmed to us a few chapters down the line. But one thing that's left more ambiguous, especially because unlike the show, we don't have an in with the Tyrells. There's no POV Tyrell. We only have Littlefinger's word, basically. Uh, seems pretty clear, but uh, we only have Littlefinger's word to go on. He doesn't tell us much. So one thing that's kind of left open is whether any other Tyrells, if any, knew about what was going on here, whether this was just Olena going solo. So what do you think? If you had to had to, you know, arrest the Tyrells, if you had to testify against the Tyrells, who who knew what and when? Do you think any of them knew besides her? I think I believe Olena would kind of take this on her own almost as a way to protect her family. She's mm-hmm. the only one. But I do feel like Marjorie has to be given just a little bit of heads up just because at a wedding, the bride and the groom are going to be so close to each other. You know, like, why don't you both take a sip from the chalice together right. for a nice photo or something? And Elena's like over someone's shoulder going, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think like maybe maybe Marjorie didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but maybe she had some inkling or Olena said, hey, don't drink from his chalice or that's for the king. Maybe she made it seem like it was not a big thing. Like it's bad luck for the bride to drink from a groom's cup on the wedding day or something like that. Um, that's about as much as I'd go. I think this conspiracy works better if fewer people know it. And I feel like Olena, because she's invested in the you know status of her house, is, wants to make sure that like not everyone, especially the younger generations, would roll for this. Because even if Olena is found out, like if she dies, whatever. Like she's lived a long life. She's not like holding the keys to Tyrell power Good going point. forward. That lays with Mace or Marjorie or even Garland um, or Willis. Even like it's her life for her house would be a fair exchange. But again, she's doing it in a way that she's trying not to get caught. So I True. think she would minimize involvement across the board. That's a good point. It's almost like what. Danny thinks about Strong Bell West says, yes, like he's a good fighter, but he's also the one I can afford to lose. And in a way, that's almost Elena, because as valuable as she is in terms of her intelligence and her connections, yeah, she's not the heir. She's not uh, bringing in any, any other house at this point. Politically, they can afford to lose her. And I also definitely agree that that Marjorie is the most likely of the Tyrells to know, because maybe not reasonable to think that George is thinking through every logistics when he's putting a scenario like this together, but you got to assume Marjorie has to know to stop drinking at some point. Otherwise she's going to go down with Joffrey. And if you go back to the the first Sansa chapter in this book, when Elena was introduced, when they're having that crucial conversation about Joffrey, Sansa confirms that Joffrey's a monster in that in retrospect seems to kind of be the moment Elena decides to kill Joffrey. In that moment, she exchanges, she exchanges a glance with Marjorie and they kind of go, ah, so I feel like that's there to let us know Marjorie is to a certain degree in on this because Elena is as far as we can tell is thinking of Marjorie's like you're going to be like me someday so she's got to have an apprenticeship she's got to know how this works but the rest I think specifically because of how Elena looks at the world in terms of gender and looks at at, at men most men as, as as useful fools useful idiots at best I do think it's in character for her to not tell any of the boys about this that like Loras definitely didn't know. Like I think he's mm-hmm. I think he's being honest when he thinks Sansa did it when he tells Jamie that. 
And, I mean, in part, in part as Littlefinger says, Elena is doing this in large part because she thinks Loras is going to be out of control and might kill Joffrey if Joffrey hurts Marjorie. So she's never going to trust him. Uh, Big Daddy Mace, I'm betting, probably does not know. I don't think Elena tells Mace much of anything uh, at this point. Wouldn't even think to. Uh, Garland, people have raised theories before, is an interesting possibility, whether he knew whether he could be in on it. Uh, it would certainly be cold-blooded, uh, given what he says to Tyrion <laughs> and Sansa. I lean, I lean against that. I think it's maybe more likely than the other boys, but... Given, given how Elena talks about men, I think it's the most sense if she kept it to her and Marjorie. That would, that would be my guess. Yeah. And even though the show kind of went a different route, the Tyrell plan doesn't quite end here. It also involves getting Tom and now or Marjorie True. and Tom together. And I think to, you know, they have to be thinking about that next move. And it probably is easier to work on that next move if Marjorie's already in the know, as opposed to kind of like, you know, you're in mourning. But by the way, we have a backup for you. I think it makes sense to kind of include her in because she's got to start working those time and wheels now exactly start greasing those up you don't want her to waste any time being shocked about joffrey she's got to move move on immediately and i think the one of the reasons that marjorie didn't know in the show until afterwards is because so then you can have a scene where elena explains it to, to mm-hmm. marjorie and then the audience knows about it and you, and you don't have to just rely on little fingers word like like you do in the book so i think that makes i think that makes sense so that is going to wrap us up for our episode on a storm of swords Tyrion eight thank you so much for listening as always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps us find new listeners. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits including early access to our regular episodes and multiple exclusive episodes every month. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Porkwenton at Twitter and Blue Sky. And I'm Manu, and you can find me at Bomb on Twitter and Blue Sky. Usually here I plug my Lord of the Rings podcast, but on October 24th, the Metal Gear Solid Collection, Volume 1, will be re-releasing on all modern systems, which include Metal Gear Solids 1, 2, and 3. Uh, For those of you that that do not know, I did a Metal Gear Solid podcast covering all the existing games called Podcast Sans Frontieres. Um, it's basically, you know, podcast without borders, but in French for some reason. <laughs> uh, but we covered all the games in depth, multiple episodes. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be discovering Metal Gear Solid or rediscovering Metal Gear Solid in the coming weeks. Um, so if you're interested in a very not a cast style podcast about Metal Gear Solid, um, please check out Podcast Sans Frontiers. Hell yeah. Everyone check that out. Yeah, I will be, I will be among the people rediscovering because it has been a long time since I played, uh, since I played those games. So that's going to be great. So, uh, I recently wrapped up my Lord of the Rings episodes for patrons, covering things up, wrapping things up with uh, Book 6, Chapter 9, The Grey Havens. That is out now for all of our $5 and above patrons. I'm going to be moving on, moving back to George R. R. Martin's 1982 novel, A Fever Dream, his great vampire novel that we've been covering earlier here on the Nauticast. I'm going to be getting back into that in December. I'll be taking November uh, off from that week in the rotation and be getting into A Fever Dream, the last seven chapters of Fever Dream, starting in December. Next up for patrons is going to be my next episode on Star Wars. Moving on to the the princess heist on the Death Star in the original movie. That is going to be out next week. And then next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's A Storm of Swords, Sansa 5, in which Sansa escapes King's Landing with Ser Dantos, only to fall into Littlefinger's clutches instead. And I guess that's better than Joffrey, but low, low bar. I mean, I'm just still mourning Ser Dantos. He was, you know, he was the... Florian of our story, and now he's gone. So sad. So right. sad. The only man who could outdrink Tyrion. It's, 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 <laughs> it's a shame to lose him. So uh, thanks again for listening. We will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Sansa 5. <laughs>